Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here at church. And uh, for those of you uh, online, isn't it a wonderful thing that uh, you can join us uh, wherever you are in the world? Um, Today, we are looking at the final chapter of Galatians. Uh, We've made it thus far. And uh, if you haven't actually been following along, uh, maybe you just clicked on a random link and you're here and you have no idea what Galatians is about. Well, then I definitely encourage you to go back to our other sermons that Joe has been preaching. Uh, but just for your sake, uh, I will give us a quick recap of, uh, of what we've been going through. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, we're going to be going through the first 10, 10 verses there. Um, but uh, yeah, as you do that, I will pray. So let's do that. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you and into your presence and uh, we can hear from you. We thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit uh, who lives in us. And we thank you that uh, you've given us your word, that we can hear from you. And Father, I pray that we would have hearts that are receptive to what you're saying this morning. Our Lord, I pray that uh, we would be quick to apply the things that uh, you share with us, uh, that we be a people who are responsive and sensitive to your spirit. Uh, Father, I pray that as we do that, you would be glorified, that everything uh, that happens today through this service, through me, I uh, would bring you glory and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so Paul has learnt of this insidious teaching that was being spread throughout the churches in Galatia. It was a false gospel. And this gospel claimed that you could earn your salvation by strict adherence to the law and its regulations. There were these heretics out there who claimed that you needed to be circumcised, you needed to eat specific foods or observe specific religious days in order to be saved. And from the very beginning of the letter, Paul sets out quite forcefully to put things straight. In chapter 1, Paul says that he is astonished by how quickly the Galatians abandoned the the true gospel of grace. And he pronounces a curse on anyone, whether human or angel, who might preach a different gospel to the gospel of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 1, exasperated, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In chapter 4, verse 9, Paul asks them if they would like to go back to being slaves once again. In chapter 5, verse 7, Paul asks them, Who cut you off? in the race that you were running. And in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul even says that he wishes those who are preaching circumcision that they would go so far as to emasculate themselves. And you can see that the tone in Paul's writing reflects the serious danger in which this teaching can lead us astray. If you're worried that you're not doing enough, you're worried that you're not good enough to be saved, then you've fallen into the same trap. If you're trying to save yourself, doing everything that you can to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps as though your life depended on it, then what you're actually doing, Paul tells us, is rejecting Jesus' sacrifice that was meant for you. Instead of trusting in him for your salvation, you're trying to do it on your own. Chapter 5, verse 4, the NLT puts it like this. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. You see, the fact is Jesus has set us free from this impossible task of trying to earn our salvation through adherence to the law. 
We're set free from our vain efforts in trying to save ourselves. We've been granted freedom from this because of Jesus' death on the cross. It's only by grace that we are saved through faith in him, not by works. We are no longer slaves to the law. And the question then is, what shall we do with such freedom? How should we live in light of what God has done for us? And as we heard last week, we are to walk by the Spirit. God has made us his children, sons and daughters of him. He sealed us by the Holy Spirit who now lives in us, who dwells in us, and enables us to live as God created us to be. Before, we were slaves to our sinful natures, unable to reciprocate the love of God. But now, the Holy Spirit enables us to live just as God designed, people who sacrificially love him and our neighbors as ourselves. In chapter 5, verse 24, Paul says that if we belong to Jesus, then we've nailed our old passions and desires to the cross and crucified them. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how we're meant to live. Dead to our old ways, but alive to Christ, walking in the newness of his Holy Spirit. Joe gave us last week the example of doing the waltz. The Holy Spirit takes the lead, and we are simply to follow his steps. And as we do that, we'll naturally see the fruit of the Spirit develop in our lives, shaping our character. And today, as we begin chapter 6, Paul gives us further insight into what that looks like, into what it means to live by the Spirit, and how we can practically do that. You remember that Joe emphasized last week, knowing the word of God and being obedient to it. And of course, that still applies today. Um, but also today, we're going to look at some more concrete examples of what the Spirit leads us to do and how we can use our newfound freedom in a way that honors and glorifies God alone. The reading comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to invite Cass to come and read to us. Reading from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become wary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Thanks, Cass. Verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. When a person is caught in sin, our natural instinct may be to distance ourselves from that person. Maybe we don't want to be associated with them because of what they've done. 
Maybe it's uh, just easier not to get involved and to pretend like nothing has happened. But Paul's advice here is contrary to that. When a brother or sister sins, the spirit is grieved. And if we're sensitive to that spirit, then we'll also be disturbed. The conviction we receive from him, the Holy Spirit, and our desire for reconciliation should far outweigh our personal qualms or comforts. We should desire to promptly address that sin and restore that person. Notice that Paul deliberately adds the word gently. We may be tempted to rebuke that person and bring down the judgment hammer upon them, particularly if we've been influenced or affected by that person's sin personally. But the Spirit's method is marked by gentleness, with a focus on restoration, not assigning blame or passing judgment. Now this verse also contains a warning. We're called to watch ourselves, or we may also be tempted to fall into that very same sin. In the process of dealing with a gossiper, it can be easy to become a gossiper as well. When someone is frustrated or angry, we may unwittingly incite in ourselves the same frustrations or anger. If someone has been involved in sexual sin, we may be tempted to commit sexual sin ourselves. It would be wise to first evaluate where we are at spiritually before attempting to deal with another's sin. Verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, the other week I was helping a friend move a couch. They wanted to borrow one of our neighbor's couches, and so I was helping him move it. Uh, naturally, we were pivoting this way and that. Uh, and now when you help someone lift a heavy object, like a couch, uh, what you're actually doing is easing the amount of weight that they carry. Uh, so imagine a very heavy 100-kilogram couch, for example. Uh, when I help to carry this couch, what I'm doing is taking roughly 50 kilograms of that weight off of them and onto myself. That's how you help someone to carry their burden. Uh, now that might seem like a very, very obvious thing, and hopefully it is. Uh, but what it, does to, uh, what it does is reveal to us this spiritual truth. If you're going to help carry someone else's burden, you can't do it without putting some of that burden upon yourself. You see, carrying another's burdens always means we take upon ourselves some of that burden. It always involves sacrifice. The best example is, of course, Jesus. He carried the burden of our sin upon himself. And he didn't just take half of it, he took all of it and he freed us from the burden completely. In so doing, he fulfilled the law by way of example. He loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and he demonstrated his sacrificial love for us so that we could be free, and he calls us to do the same for our brothers and sisters. If you only help someone else because it's convenient for you or because you're expecting something in return, you are not fulfilling the law of Christ. Anybody can do that, even the tax collectors. To carry someone else's burden means it costs you something and, we, and costs you something, and we're meant to do it without thinking about what's in it for us. We are called to love one another sacrificially, and the Holy Spirit within us enables us to do that. That's what the, what, that's what the law of Christ is, to love your neighbor as yourself. So what are some burdens that you can help with? Well, I came up with a list of just a few. You can support others in prayer. You can help people financially. You can help parents look after their kids. You can help a family with preparing meals. You can support someone who is lonely or depressed. Maybe you can mow someone else's lawn. You can help clean or tidy the church or someone else's home. You can volunteer to help out at camp. You can do ministries at church. 
there's the AV, worship, kids, MCs, preachers, welcomers, and so many others. And all that might sound a little too hard for you. Well, be warned. Verse 3 says this, If anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. I like how the NLT puts it very bluntly. In verse 3 it says this, If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. You see, the body of Christ only functions properly when we support one another. There is no division in the body of Christ. We are all united by the same Spirit, and you are never too important to help someone else. In fact, if you think you're somebody special, you are deceived. James 4.6 says this, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I am not exempt from helping someone just because I may be up here speaking from the pulpit. I am not any more or any less important than any of you in the body of Christ. Uh, I personally actually am very glad that uh, we have cleaners of the church and that we don't have to stack chairs anymore because I really don't like cleaning and I don't like stacking chairs. Uh, but if we were to go back to the old days and the church needed to be cleaned every week and we needed to stack the chairs uh, before and after every service, then I would do it gladly as unto the Lord. Uh, indeed, Joe and Grizz still regularly clean and reorganize the church every now and again. And they do it because they love the church and it's not beneath them to do so, even though they are the head, the pastor of our church. We ought to follow their example and serve with the same attitude. Verse 4, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now I know what you're thinking. At first glance, verse 5 definitely sounds like a contradiction to verse 2 that we've just read. Paul said back in verse 2 that we had to carry each other's burdens. And now we're told somehow in verse 5 that each person should carry their own load. Well, the word load used here has the connotation of personal responsibility. Again, the NLT is, is quite helpful here. In verse 5 it says, instead, for we are responsible for our own conduct. What verse 5 is really saying is that, we, uh, that our actions have consequences. And to carry our own load actually means to be responsible for our actions. Uh, for example, right now I am responsible for the words that come forth from my mouth. If I decide to ignore God's Holy Spirit and to willfully choose to, to preach heresy or to make up the Gospel of Jono, for example, then I am responsible for that. I am responsible for misleading you and causing confusion amongst God's people. The consequences of my actions are my responsibility and they fall on me. Now you as a listener, you also have responsibility. Your responsibility is to ensure that what you hear and what you choose to accept as truth is in accordance with God's word as the Bereans did in Acts 17.11. So having cleared that up, if we look back then at verse 4, we are told to test our own actions. And Paul says then something, again, that sounds a little bit off here. He says, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. That's a little odd, isn't it? Isn't pride a sin? Didn't we just say in James 4.6 that God opposes the proud? Well, Paul's actually saying that we should examine our own actions. And if our actions come from pure motives, with the focus being on God's glory and not our own, then we can be satisfied, perhaps even proud, of what God achieves through us, 
without comparing the results to others. Uh, from a very young age, we've been conditioned to compare ourselves to others. In school, for example, we're encouraged to compete and to compare exam results with one another. Uh, instead of being satisfied with just doing our best, we get discouraged by how many other people did better than we did. Uh, maybe you lead a Bible study or, or maybe you do worship and, and you see others do a better job than yourself. And you think, I made so many mistakes. I, you know, I can't sing like so-and-so or I can't play the guitar or the drums like so-and-so. And, and maybe you get discouraged by seeing that others succeed. But what really matters is not so much how well you went. What matters is, did you trust in the Holy Spirit's power? Did you lean on Him? Did you trust in Him? Not by your own might, your own skill, your own power, but by His Spirit. Did you do it with pure motives, out of a love for God and for your neighbor? Because if you did, if you can truthfully answer yes to those questions, then in God's eyes, it was a success. And you can actually take great joy, delight, and even pride in that. What matters to God is the wholeheartedness of your attitude in whatever you do. Uh, for me, even as I prepare and as I deliver this sermon, am I focusing on following the Spirit's leading and being faithful to His Word? After all, any transformation that may take place in your life is not because I carefully crafted some words, uh, but rather because God enacted the change by His Holy Spirit through the hearing of His Word. His Spirit is the one who works powerfully in the soil of a receptive person's heart. We should be proud when God uses us to accomplish His work. Not proud because of our own ability, skill, or strength, but rather that God would choose to use these hands and this mouth for his purposes. I mean, what a privilege and what an honor that he would choose to use me this morning to send forth his word to you. He could have chosen to use a donkey or a rock, but instead he chose a forgiven sinner like me. That's what it means to be responsible for the tasks that we've been entrusted with and to take pride in our actions that are ultimately done to the glory of God and not our own. So next time you set out to do something for the Lord, examine your motives, do it with the help of the Holy Spirit, and be satisfied, leaving the result to the Lord. Verse 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Here, Paul reveals the Spirit's desire for us to provide for those who teach the word of God. He is actually most likely referring to physical, tangible support, things like money, food, or lodging. Uh, Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to 14, and you can read all of that in your own time, but let me read just verses 11 and 14. Verse 11 first. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And then in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Uh, Paul himself actually did not exercise this right as a preacher of the gospel. He withheld that right. He chose to support himself as a tent maker so as not to be a burden upon the churches and new converts that he visited. But Paul's argument is still a compelling one. Those who have devoted themselves to the ministry should be supported by the church who ultimately reap the benefits of their work. As Joe has said previously, if you don't want to be the one supporting others in gospel ministry, then the only alternative is that you go yourself. 
We are either the ones going and deserving of such support, or we're the ones who are providing the support. That's part of our responsibility as spirit-led believers. Vocational ministers have willingly sacrificed much, and uh, sacrificed much, and it's only right in the eyes of God that we are generous in supporting them in their ministry and partnering, partnering with them in the gospel work. I'm glad that as a church, GCC has budgeted support for both Joe and other ministry partners. Walking in step with the Spirit means that we should always be eager, we should always be open and generous in supporting the needs of missionaries and other gospel workers. Verse 7, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Can you tell that Paul is very wary of being us being deceived? He warned us before in verse 1 to watch ourselves unless we fall into temptation. In verse 3, we might deceive ourselves into thinking that we're too important to help someone else. In verse 4, we're told to test our own actions so that we don't deceive ourselves. And now here in verse 7, we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that we can get away with mocking or deceiving God. What Paul states here is a basic law of nature and one that translates into a spiritual law. A man reaps what he sows. If you sow apple seeds, you don't get oranges, you don't get grapes or cherries, you get apples. If you sow seeds to your own sinful desires, don't be fooled into thinking that you'll somehow reap the fruit of the Spirit instead. No, you will harvest your own sinful destruction. If you sow gossip, expect to receive gossip and discord. If you fill your mind with perverted things, expect addiction and enslavement to those things. If you keep letting your anger get out of your control, expect to be continually frustrated by little things and get used to others avoiding you. However, the positive side of this statement is also true. If you sow seeds that please the Spirit, then you reap the fruit of the Spirit and eternal life. Charles Reed, an English novelist in the 1800s, said this. I think it has been quoted before. We sow a thought and reap an act. We sow an act and reap a habit. We sow a habit and reap a character. We sow a character and reap a destiny. Wherever you are at spiritually right now is a result of the thoughts and the actions that you've made in the past. You are currently reaping today whatever you planted last week, last month, or last year. If today your walk with God is weak, if your faith is wavering and you don't feel close to him, then most likely you made poor decisions last week, last month, or last year. It would be wise to reflect and examine such decisions. But fortunately for you and fortunately for me, hope is not lost. While your past may determine your spiritual state today, it is your actions and thoughts today that determine your future. If you choose to sow today to the Spirit, if you choose to turn your thoughts to Him, to make decisions in line with His will, and to invest in the eternal and not the temporal, then you will reap the fruit of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of gentleness, and self-control. 
What you choose to set your mind on will influence your actions, so therefore set your mind on things above. Your actions form the basis of your habits. Your habits form your character. Your character and who you choose to be will ultimately determine your destiny. Paul continues this thought in verses 9 and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Notice that Paul purposely chooses to use the metaphor of sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting. Uh, one of the reasons that I'm not a very good gardener, or that I don't like being in the garden, is because you need to be very patient. You see, plants and fruit, they don't just grow overnight. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they did? As any farmer knows, it takes many months of cultivation and care to grow crops. Sowing the seed is only the beginning of a long process. It isn't until much later on that you get to reap a harvest. When you live for your sinful nature, you may not reap destruction straight away. You may think that you can get away with your actions. But don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. God knows the choices that you've made, uh, he, and he is long-suffering. Whatever temporary satisfaction you may have received by sowing to your flesh, he will ultimately have the last say. Don't think that you can mock the God of the universe. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But by the same token, if instead you choose to sow to the Spirit, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't think that just because you're not seeing or feeling the blessings of God, that God is not there. The harvest will come at due time. Keep at it, press on, go deeper, persevere and push through. Commit any discouragements and disappointments along the way to God and keep doing good. Keep sowing, keep planting, keep cultivating the good soil. We will reap a harvest if we don't give up. I apologize in advance for yet another marathon analogy. Uh, Joe has his rugby illustrations, and I have my one marathon one. Uh, I don't know if I've done anything harder than completing a marathon in my life. Um, it's both physically and mentally grueling. Uh, now, the most common mistake that everyone makes, including myself, is you start way too hard. A marathon is long, it's 42 kilometers, and uh, a lot of people tell you that the race only really starts at kilometer 30 after that after that kilometer. That's when things get really tough. Uh, physically speaking, uh, at this time, by, by this time, a normal person's glycogen stores have been exhausted. Your body is forced to compensate by burning fat, and that's a much slower and far more painful process, particularly as you're expending more energy than your body can give to you. Uh, without adequate training and fueling, your body hits the wall, and you physically and mentally don't know how you're going to be able to keep going, let alone finish the remaining kilometers. Sometimes life can feel a little bit like we've hit the wall, can't it? Maybe you've been serving tirelessly, volunteering your time and efforts, only for it to go underappreciated. Maybe somebody said something at just the wrong time, at, at uh, just the wrong thing at just the wrong time, and it totally derails you. It feels like you really did as much as you could to honor God and to glorify him. You did your best for him, and yet nobody cared. Nobody noticed. Nobody realized how much time and effort you went to, how much mental energy you invested in doing that good work. 
You did it selflessly, selfless, selflessly, but you only got back disappointment. May I encourage you, as did many strangers on the sidelines of my race that day, to keep going. You're at kilometer 30 and there's 42 to run. You've come this far and you've got everything you need to finish. As Joe shared with us, stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. And they're all cheering us on, urging us to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're not to dwell on the praise or lack of acknowledgement from man. The eternal reward of glory far outweighs the temporary setbacks we experience in this lifetime. God's promise is that we will reap a harvest at the proper time. Don't grow weary. Keep taking those opportunities to do good, especially to the family of believers. Now, I must admit that when I look at the scriptures, it sometimes seems to me like Paul is just replacing one thing with another. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes it feels like he's saying, you know, these old laws and these old regulations like circumcision and special foods and religious days, you're now free from all of those things, but he kind of then goes on to replace them with all these new things that we ought to do instead, like what we've heard today, restoring your brother when he sins, providing financially for vocational ministers or continuing to do good for others. And you might question, isn't he just replacing one set of rules with another? In what sense are we now really free? Aren't we simply slaves to this new kind of law? And I know I've wondered this, but let me remind myself and let me remind you, there is a massive difference between doing works trying to be saved versus doing works because you're saved. The former is like being thrown into a bottomless pit, being given a shovel and telling, being told to dig yourself out. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you are forever stuck at the bottom of that pit. That's what it's like trying to fulfill the entire law on your own. Nothing you do makes one iota of a difference to your salvation. No one can dig themselves out of a bottomless pit. However, the latter is like someone who came down from above and traded their place above for your place below so that you could be free. Jesus does exactly this. He gives up his right and his freedom and his heavenly privilege because he wants you to be free instead. Not only that, but no pit could contain him. He broke free and conquered the grave. And so now that your place has been traded for, now that you are alive and free and you live above, how will you choose to live? Will you keep trying to dig your way out of the pit? Will you cling to that shovel, hoping that it will save you? Of course not. That's what the Galatians did, and that's what sometimes we are like when we try to do all these good things to save us. Of course you wouldn't do that. That would be foolish. What are you going to do instead? Well, you're going to live free, free to love the one who rescued you, free and now empowered to enjoy a real relationship with the one who took your place. That's the difference. We do it out of gratitude, knowing what God has already done for us. We have been rescued and we have been given his spirit that we can now freely do good to others, not trying to claw our ways outside of this pit. Now you might have one other objection and I think it's a natural one to have as well. 
Some of you say, well, you know, I can't do all these things. You know, you've just told me roughly 10 things that we should be doing to others and doing good, and, but I can't stop sinning. I can't stop giving in to my sinful nature. I can't love others like you're telling me I should. I don't know how to restore a brother in sin or carry someone else's burdens. I can't shake my own pride or keep going when, the, when it gets really difficult. And actually, if you're like that, then you'd be absolutely right. You can't do that, but the Holy Spirit within you can. Author John Stott put it like this. It's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. You see, you're not meant to do it alone. That's why it's called living by the spirit. That's why we walk with him. That's why we follow his leadings. That's why God gave us the spirit to dwell within us so that we truly can be free We can be free to obey him, free to glorify him, free to honor him, free to love others as ourselves. We are lowly earthen vessels, but filled by the very spirit of the God of the universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We recognize that uh, we are an imperfect people. That God, we are tempted to do things in our own strength and by our own skill and uh, we're tempted not to rely on you. But Father, we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. That because of what Jesus has done on the cross, that we can now live free that we can enjoy real relationship with you. We thank you so much that we don't have to do it on our own, that we can't do it on our own, but that you've given us him who dwells in us, that we can live a life like you call us to. Father, I pray that we truly would be free today, that we will be liberated from this weight, from this burden of trying to rescue ourselves And instead, out of gratitude, out of your grace and out of your mercy that you've shown us, that God, we would live free as your free people. Father, help us. Help us to live consistently with the spirit that lives within us. Help us to draw near to you, to be sensitive to your spirit, to what he says to us daily. Help us to make decisions and help us to have thoughts and set our mind on you, that we might choose to do actions and, and things that we might sow to the Spirit and, and reap a harvest, that we might reap that eternal life in due time. Father, for those of us who really are struggling, for those of us who are doing it tough, help us to be encouraged by your word this morning. Help us to see that we don't need to look to man or to seek their approval, but that we have your approval that we can be even proud that you would use us, that you would dwell within us, and that, God, we can live for you and and glorify you, that we can do good things, really good things, that are pure and noble and good, 
because your spirit does them within us. God, change our mindsets, change the way we live, help us think as you think, and help us to rely on your spirit wholly. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, church.